Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Well, welcome, listeners. We are talking today about the resurrection and resurrection appearances of Christ. I am going to do my best to represent a thinking person's more critical response related to these proofs in favor of the resurrection. So if you if you hear me throughout and you kind of want to yell through your headphones, then I'm doing my job. We've done it well. <laughs> So we are really just going to jump right in. This is the season of Easter. We've just celebrated the resurrection of Christ. And there is even 2000 years later, and maybe more so 2000 years later, still a shocking amount of controversy around this early period. And there's been much written, much ink spilled, but we wanted to get this into a podcast format that might be helpful for you when talking to friends that have questions, or even if you have struggles in your own faith that you you hope to be um, boosted or reassured by some thinking Christians. So we're going to start with our first question here, which is, how are we to understand the idea that Christianity is verifiable and falsifiable? Stan, I'll have you take that for us first. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll start just by saying that unlike other religions, Christianity stands or falls on a, a fact of history, whether there was an empty tomb three days after the crucifixion of this Jewish carpenter. And uh, this was understood to be central by not only his followers, but by the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities of the time. Uh, and so this is the central way that either the Christian faith was and continues to be proven, and I use that word decidedly, but proven to be true or shown to be false. Yes, I would agree. Christianity is an ideology in that it is a worldview and a set of ideas, but it's really, it's grounded in a God who supposedly acts in history with the supreme act being uh, the raising of his of his son Jesus from the dead, and if that happened, then and, and if we have reason to believe it happened, then Christianity is not only true, but it's a sensible religion. And there's a way to falsify it, and that's to provide uh, enough grounds to say it's a legend or whatever it might be. In which case, there may still be a God, but the Christian concept of God is not is not viable. Mm-hmm. And this is what I've heard many liberal theologians respond to. For instance, in the the Apostles' Creed, they can assert everything in the Apostles' Creed except that one little section that cites Pontius Pilate. Because then all of a sudden, all of these spiritual themes are tied in history, and that's the problem. And that's what makes it falsifiable or verifiable. So do we have good reasons to believe that Christ rose from the dead beyond what we simply believe because we believe scripture is true? Well, I think we should follow Gary Habermas's approach. He's a, an expert on the resurrection, recognized as such. And he begins with what he calls a minimal facts approach. Hmm. And that means that he establishes a set of facts that virtually all historians of that era, 
whether they're atheists or skeptics or Jewish or Christian or whatever their background, they will grant a set of facts. So these are these are historically agreed upon facts of the matter. And then the question is, how do we explain them? And so here is a list of, uh, there may be an outlier here and there that doesn't accept these, but the overwhelming majority of histories, regardless of worldview, would accept number one. JP, before you go, let me clar- let me clarify something that I think might be confusing yeah. to listeners. You said historians of that era. You don't mean historians who lived during that time, but you mean historians now who study that era. That's right. Uh, either New Testament historians or classic historians. Right. So historians uh, today who study that period. Thank you. Sorry. Got it. Uh, The first fact is that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under the rule of Pontius Pilate uh, in Judea. That's that's an established fact. Number two, his tomb would have been most likely known and was found empty shortly after his crucifixion. Number three, after the tomb was found empty, his disciples had been a group of discouraged, disappointed, uh, bewildered, hopeful followers who had ended up they were wrong and they went back to their original uh, lives. They became world-transforming people such that they were able to reach Caesar's very household within 25 years of the death of Jesus. And that's because it is now an established fact that the disciples of Jesus and some others believed that they had seen appearances of the risen Jesus. Now, this doesn't say they did, but they all believe they did see appearances of the risen Jesus. Uh, Another fact is that the brother of uh, Jesus, James, did not accept his brother's uh, teachings when he was alive but uh, was executed in the early 60s by being stoned in the Jewish temple because he had come to be the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And then finally, Saul of Tarsus was a real figure who was transformed from being a murderer of Christians to a leading advocate of it. Now, these are at least a fundamental set of facts that are not in dispute and the question is, what is the best explanation of those facts? That is helpful. I think I would push in and ask, in Scripture, we see the disciples not recognizing Jesus. There, there are a few examples of that. But, of course, you have Mary thinking he's the gardener. You have the disciples who have, you know, they see him, they think you know, oh, okay, he, he came through a wall, this is great, but then they go fishing, and later Jesus comes to them, and they don't recognize him from the shore, and then you have several several other instances of people not, and of course, the road to Emmaus is probably the most, the most obvious one, where if you were an attorney trying to prove that these people were adequate witnesses, if they said something like, well, I thought he was a gardener, but then I realized it's Jesus or yeah, he came and visited us in his post-resurrection glory, but we still went fishing mm-hmm. and, you know, oh, 
well, he did see us on the road to Emmaus, but we walked with him all day and he explained everything in the scriptures, but we didn't realize it was him until we got back to the house. So are we, are we to believe that they changed their minds after the ascension? Well, this actually strengthens the credibility of their testimony. Let me make two Mm -hmm. points about this. First of all, the Gospel of Peter, which is an apocryphal gospel written by we don't know whom, in the second century, has Jesus come out of the tomb, and he's followed by two individuals, and their feet are on the ground, but their heads are up 5,000 feet in the clouds, and Jesus has a cross that's 5,000 feet tall. Now, that is an exaggerated, what, that's what legend looks like. When you compare that to the gospel accounts, one of the points of their credibility is they're relatively tame, and I guess you would say almost chastened. They're not fantastical or stupendous. And so if Jesus came out of the tomb in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he was just bold people over with who he was, that could happen. But you, that, that might sound a little bit incredible, but, but detectives will tell you that if people witness something that runs contrary to their expectation, if they see someone that they know, that they know to be a really great person, stealing something from a store, at first they say that can't, that can't be him because he's just not that, that can't be true. But then if they look more carefully, they realize, oh, my gosh, it is it is my buddy. And so the disciples' expectations were so in the opposite direction because of their view of the Messiah as a political liberator. And the the women that when they saw things, I don't think that they were able to process what they were seeing. And I think it took them a little bit of a more focus to say, wait a minute, my gosh, it's, it's, it's the Lord Jesus. It isn't the gardener. So I think that is what you would expect in a witness who's observing something that runs contrary to their, all their expectations. Cause at first glance, they're going to say, no way, this is, I must be misperceiving. And so that actually lends in my view to the credibility of the accounts. I don't think you'd make something up like that because then it would raise the skeptics uh, issue. Why didn't they recognize them immediately? So that lends credibility to it. Stan, you want No, I think that's right. I'll just reiterate that these are all cases of the gospel accounts having the texture of history. And if you're writing this and trying to make everybody look as good as possible, uh, you're you're going to have them get it right off the bat. But the fact that they don't is just another indication that we've got a first-rate historical text here just telling us what happened in the unvarnished truth and let the chips fall where they may. Now, the, the, the fact is that uh, they did, as JP just mentioned, eventually come to figure it out, to realize this is the resurrected Jesus. But that was based on, again, back to our earlier conversation, data. It wasn't they just decided, well, I'm going to take a blind leap of faith and just believe that's the resurrected Jesus. No, Thomas puts his, 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 his finger in Jesus' wounds and realizes, okay, I've got empirical confirmation. You are the risen Savior that you claim to be. 
and others as well eventually figured out based on the accumulation of data, which helps change, as JP was saying, those initial beliefs of this can't be to, oh, it must be based on the data that I have before me. Great point. Well, let, let me just add something to something Stan said when he said that you, you wouldn't make this sort of thing up. You, if you make something up, it doesn't have the texture of history and you do it to enhance. Like if you're writing a history of the, of the Roman Caesars and you want them to really look like semi-gods, you're going to make them up to be these incredible figures that are more than what they really were. Now, when it comes to the empty tomb, the reason that it is widely acknowledged that it was empty and the disciples knew where it was, was first of all, we, have, we know that Jesus was allegedly buried in a wealthy man's tomb in the garden gate area of the city. We have found 50 tombs that were tombs of rabbis or priests or wealthy people in that garden gate area. So that was a place, in fact, where the wealthy and other highly respected leaders had tombs. Secondly, the description of the tomb indicates in the Gospels that it was an Acrosolia tomb, which is exactly the kind of tomb that was found in that Garden Gate area. There were other sorts of tombs, but this again matches what we've known. Now, this is uh, two more points on this. And then Stan could add, but um, the third one is that if you were going to legendize this, your, your purpose would be, I think, to enhance the leadership of the church. And, and, and so people would realize that these are giants and let, we will obey their, their words. And so you would think that the disciples would be the first ones to discover the tomb was empty, not women, because uh, their testimony was not considered legitimate in a court of law in those days. So that would be the criterion of embarrassment. You don't make up something that's going to be counterproductive to your cause. And by putting women in there, it would almost guarantee no, nobody would believe it because you can't trust a woman's testimony according to those times. But more, you would, you would want the disciples to be the first ones to enhance their ministry. Same with the empty tomb. Uh, it would see you would want it to be someone that was one of the 12, uh, uh, their family tomb. But who do they pick? They pick another mistake, namely a public figure that everybody knew mm. because people knew who was on the Sanhedrin in those days. There were 70 people on the Sanhedrin. And uh, most people today that are thoughtful know our senators. There's, you know, 100 of them. So there were less, but everybody knew their names. Now, you don't make up the name of Joseph of Arimathea if there was no Joseph of Arimathea, because people would know that. And he would be the sort that would have a tomb. And so the presence of the name Joseph of Arimathea adds further credibility to the fact that it was, in fact, his tomb where Jesus was buried and it was found empty. Well, and there's a number of other lines of evidence. I know, JP, you've written on this. We'll uh, cite uh, some of those sources in the show notes as well, some things I've written. But, uh, but for instance, the, the fact is that the empty tomb is discussed in Jerusalem within just a 
very short period of time from when the 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 crucifixion and led resurrection happened i mean within within weeks and if you're going to be making up a story you're going to be talking about uh in in a in a in a land far far away <laughs> or in a time long long ago so there just aren't people around to verify these these things you can say whatever you want to say because there's nobody who can can say no that's not the case but to cite an empty tomb so close to the time of its alleged occurrence and in the same city is unexplainable outside of this. This is history. This actually happened. Yeah. Well, let me back this up even further. Uh, Stan has made a crucial point. Uh, now, somebody may say, well, but you're 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 basing your evidence on that preaching mm-hmm. uh, by the Bible, the, the, the early chapters of the book of Acts. Well, not so quick because Stan, I know, isn't doing that. There was a book written by Graham Stanton called Jesus of Nazareth in New Testament Preaching, published by Cambridge University Press. He did a detailed study of the speeches in Acts 1 to 12 and compared them to the speeches from Acts 13 to 28. What he found is that while there's clearly a single author that wrote all 28 chapters of the book of Acts, the speeches in 1 to 12 differ dramatically from those in, in uh, 13 to 28. And let me give you two ways. One, the speeches in 1 to 12 translate back into Aramaic very nicely. Mm-hmm. 13 to 28 do not. They were obviously first delivered in Greek. 1 through 12 has a very primitive understanding of Jesus' mission. He is called thy holy Son Jesus, uh, the Jewish Messiah, but uh, thirteen and on, he's addressed more with a, with a more reflective understanding, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in these early chapters, they quote the Old Testament differently than the way the Old Testament is quoted in thirteen to twenty eight. What's the point? Luke or whoever wrote Acts, I think it was Luke, is using documents or oral tradition about speeches that really happened. Because, see, 13 to 28 were supposedly Paul's speeches to Greek-speaking Gentiles and Jews around the Mediterranean world. 1 to 12 were supposed to be originally delivered in the language of the Jews, Hebrew and Aramaic, early in the church when it was largely Jewish. And these are indeed early primitive Jewish speeches designed for people who spoke that language and quoted the Old Testament a certain way. So that's evidence that these speeches are, in fact, real early when the church was overwhelmingly Jewish right from the get-go. That further buffers to his claim that this proclamation of the resurrection began right there in a real early, early time. Good point. So... In 1 Corinthians 15, this is uh, 3 through 8, is known to be an early creedal statement. So it's thought that Paul was documenting something that he had heard before. Mm -hmm. He's not making it up on the spot there, but, you know, it's recorded for us in history in 1 Corinthians 15. So it, it goes as follows. For I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, 
most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So there, Paul makes the point that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And Jesus on the road to Emmaus talks about how he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. So back to the point of Jesus not being what they expected, it would seem that a learned Jew would have expected something like this, something like what was revealed in Daniel or Ezekiel, that there would be, there would be something like this. So maybe does that, that argument of them not expecting a resurrected Christ really hold up? Yeah, it does. And I'll tell you why. We know from all kinds of sources in the intertestamental period that the Jews' idea of a suffering servant who would die as a sacrifice was suppressed. Rabbis in earlier centuries did take that to be a legitimate aspect of the Messiah, but that was suppressed. And there was another aspect of the Messiah who would be a ruling king sitting on the the throne of David, and all the Gentile nations would come and serve him in Jerusalem. Uh, Now, that was the one that had been emphasized because that's what they needed to get the Romans off their backs. However, we're told that Jesus taught them concerning himself and the kingdom for 40 days. And something happened so that they came to see the suffering servant Messiah in the Old Testament when they didn't have eyes to see that until some something happened. I think it was what Acts tells us. So they were able to break free of their cultural conditioning, and they were able to get, somehow they got eyes to see this other strand of messianic prophecy, and Jesus did fulfill that in his first coming and will fulfill the reigning king in his second coming. I would add to that a counterpoint that in Matthew 28, 17, discussing the just before the ascension, um, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. So if if he appeared to them, he he's given them all of this evidence for 40 days, and people still were doubtful. What reason would they have to doubt if they are seeing a man ascend into heaven? Well, this is the reality that we see today. Uh, if you have strong, strongly enough held control beliefs that determine what must be, then you can explain any other evidence in light of that. And so, you know, we can't just assume people of other times are, 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 are not thinking about things the way we naturally tend to think about things skeptically if they don't fit into our control beliefs and 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 that certainly is a case as jp was just mentioning with the the view of the messiah that had developed and was the view during first century times to to not understand a dying and rising messiah as the messiah of the old testament prophecy so i think there were a lot of people who struggled with that and in fact it was just the raw power of the data that helped those who did come to actually embrace by faith the Messiah to do so. Again, far from a leap of faith, 
but uh, similar to, I think, in, in our day, C.S. Lewis talking about coming into the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming <laughs> against <laughs> his will, not what he wanted to be true, but simply saw it is true. Mm-hmm. There's a great, I'm going to step out of my, step out of my skeptical <laughs> side here. There's a great quote from George MacDonald that he has in one of his um, fictions. We'll link it in the show notes. He says through one of the characters Sometimes seeing isn't believing. Sometimes seeing is just seeing. Mm. And it seems that the people, those, those 500 people, the people who were there at the Ascension, they might have just been seeing. Mm-hmm. Good point. And to be honest, that's part of my story before conversion. Uh, confronted with uh, loads and loads of evidence, but not willing to, to allow it to overturn what I had just assumed for a long time to be the case. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. I'd like to talk for a moment about what we mean when we say Jesus has a resurrected body. And it's, it's different, it seems, from a revived body such as Lazarus or even today. It seems that there's a a difference here between a resurrected body and a revived body. Can we talk about that a bit? Well, in those days, they they made a very careful distinction among three things. First, a resurrection. Secondly, a resuscitation. And third, an assumption to heaven, like Enoch was taken directly to heaven without dying. Mm -hmm. So when they began to talk about the resurrection, they they understood it to be an event at the end of the age where everyone was raised at the same time. So Lazarus was not raised from the dead. He was, but they would have described it as he was resuscitated because he didn't have a resurrected body. That means, just to take a tangent, that they if they had had these experiences which everyone acknowledges they they thought they experienced Jesus, they would have never in a thousand years interpreted them as a resurrected Jesus. Uh, because, because if that were true, they would be expecting everybody to be raised and nobody else was. They would have instead used a genre they were already familiar with. They would say that Jesus was assumed into heaven or that he, he was in some way resuscitated. So now a resurrection body is different than an ordinary body in that a resurrection body is incorruptible. It cannot be destroyed. Uh, An ordinary body, of course, is corruptible. 
And uh, the resurrection body has a glory or a glow to it uh, that radiates almost a kind of energy or radiance, uh, whereas most of the time, uh, the or- an ordinary human doesn't, unless they've had an unbelievable encounter with God, and you will see a little bit of that on their face. You can actually mm-hmm. see a glow. <laughs> so it's not, it does happen in little eyedrop amounts, but in the resurrected body, it was, it was much, and then the transfiguration. So those are two differences. And I'll add that Jesus's resurrected body has both continuity and discontinuity from his body pre-resurrection. Uh, you know, he still, after the resurrection, eats fish with the disciples. <laughs> He's got a digestive system. Mm. Uh, Thomas can still put his hand, his, his finger in his nail holes. He's still got flesh wounds, but he's also able to do things like walk through walls, which obviously can't be done pre-resurrection. So there's a, there, there's, there's a similarity, there's a continuity, there's a recognizableness to him as the same person. It's the same physical features, but clearly differences as well, which is, is a first fruit of our resurrected mm-hmm. body, right? That there's, there's continuity there too for us. I know it's a little bit off topic of the apologetic conversation, but it's important, I think, as believers to understand that. Yes. Yes. And it's helpful to make that distinction because there is a common belief that, oh, yes, they had a vision of Christ or an apparition mm. would probably be a better word mm-hmm. that, sure, they, you know, lots of people have been you know visited or something like that. And to, to put these post-resurrection appearances in that category would be easy without a bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. One of my questions here would be in Matthew 28, uh, forgive me, 27, 52 to 53, we read that also the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. That seems like the kind of thing we'd have a lot more historical documentation of than we do. It also seems that the way that those people were raised to life is different in a way than what Jesus went through. Is that true? I would say yes. We live in an age now where it is beyond reasonable doubt that around 300 million people have died and had a near-death experience and come back. There are tens of thousands of cases that have been carefully vetted and are pretty well substantiated so that we do know that people can come back after they're dead. Now, there are some cases where people were dead up to three days and were able to come back. Now, in this case, I would say these people had been dead for a long time. Some of them may have been dead for 100 years. I don't know. But I want to establish the idea that somebody who's been dead and comes back is by no means an unreasonable thing to believe in. So that's step one. But step two, what we have is a special event here that stands out in salvation history from the formation of Israel with Abraham all through the time that we live in now, and that was the resurrection and of the Lord Jesus. That's a special moment in the Christian faith, assuming it's true. Now, if that was special, it wouldn't surprise me if there were not certain phenomena that happened 
that made an impact on people, but also, if you don't mind me putting it this way, was an enacted parable that made a theological point. Because sometimes parables are not stories, but they're things that actually people do, but that what they're doing speaks parabolically about a bigger truth. Mm-hmm. Now, Jesus was to be understood as the first fruits among the dead, that he would be the first raised and others would be mm-hmm. uh, would come after him. It, it is very plausible that this happened. And by the way, people tend to think, well, there must have been 10,000 of these people. There could have been 10 people. Um, we don't know. Um, we tend to exaggerate numbers if we don't know what they are. But this would have, if when the word got out to the disciples and others, they would have immediately seen that this was a result of Jesus raising. So because he rose, others will raise too, even though they might have only been resuscitated and died again later. But I think that this is a, an enacted parable that has a very important theological point to a real event that happened. So uh, I'll, I'll close with this. If, if it makes any sense at all to think the resurrection happened, and I, as we're telling you, we do think that, and if it was a special occurrence in, in humankind, which I believe everybody would acknowledge if it really happened, and Jesus was who Christians think he was, then this was a special event. Then I would certainly think something would happen that might take advantage of the specialness of this that God would use. I have no a priori way of knowing what that would be, uh, so I have to go look and see what he did do. What impresses me is about how hidden and covert this whole thing really was. I mean, there's that, of course, that you mentioned, but the resurrection, like the birth of Jesus, was not a major fanfare. It was sort of an understated event to allow people to have enough evidence who want to believe, but those who want to suppress it don't have to. So it wasn't bowl me over time. That's going to come when Jesus returns. There, the uh, options are going to be over with. But this was done in a way that it wasn't trying to knock people over. So I, I think that the hiddenness of all this is, is surprising to me. And so I've thought a lot about this as well, and that was a really helpful summary of the the, the theological and, and cultural importance of that. Uh, I have wondered about the lack of corroboratory historical data of the event. And you know, this goes in the category of no matter what one believes, there's always going to be questions they've got to still wrestle with and answer. And this is one I haven't fully landed yet. And, uh, you know, there's such a preponderance of evidence in favor of the resurrection and the biblical data being historically accurate that it's not a deal breaker for me. But it is one of those things I wonder about. Uh, it's at 5%, 10%. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not really sure how that plays out. So is there some good research you've seen on why there wasn't more of a discussion of these other resurrected individuals running around Jerusalem? <laughs> that That seems to be a pretty important deal that others might might mention in their in their writings. I would add here that it is in the non-canonical gospel of Nicodemus mentioned very specifically that um, the sons of Simeon who uh, held Jesus at the temple and uh, acknowledged him, 
their sons were raised as part of his sons were raised as part of this group of people. So mm. then Joseph of Arimathea, a few more uh, specifically named historical characters uh, go to visit them and ask them about this. And that is the harrowing of hell portion of the gospel of Nicodemus. So it's, wow. it's an early text. It's not, again, it's non-canonical, but that is one place where you would hear these stories about these people. Well, that, I didn't know that. Thank you mm. for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Stan, I don't, I've never looked into this, but where I would start uh, would be with Craig Keener and his gospel of John. Uh, Craig Keener leaves no stone unturned and no resurrection undiscussed. <laughs> so uh, given the things probably weighs 150 pounds and is, you know, probably 2000 pages, there's no doubt in my mind that he covers this in some detail. So if I were to go to one single source, though I haven't looked at that in him, I'm betting the ranch on the fact that that book will cover it. The, his gospel of John commentary. That's where I'd start. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Yeah, that would be that would be very interesting. Thanks for that. And like you said, uh, you know, I know I make assumptions about this that there were hundreds of people that came out of the tombs when everybody's around seeing them, and I've just got to check my assumptions. How many are we talking about? Were, were they seen to come out of the tombs, or they're just in the city all of a sudden showing up at their parents' house? Which is great, mm-hmm. but that's a little different than a big deal big show out at the cemetery um (laughs) were the people who saw them people who had the opportunity to write and record and there's all kinds of assumptions i know are built into this so those are the things that i i i i I need to be careful about good thinking yeah good thinking Hmm. i'd like to ask a question here about the nature of this conversation and what these facts about the resurrection can establish and what they cannot establish. So I I want you to answer as philosophers, as if either of you could not answer as philosophers, um, this question for me. Is it possible to present evidence that the risen Jesus of Nazareth is Yahweh, the God who created the universe? Yes. You mentioned uh, the hymn and the creedal statement in 1 Corinthians 15, which most scholars date between 35 and 37 A.D., I take a 33 AD crucifixion. So that's within two to four years after Jesus was executed at the very latest. And what you have in these hymns and creeds, there are about, I'm going to guess 13 of them. I can't remember exactly the number, but 12 to 17 sprinkled throughout the letters of the New Testament, including John and Peter and Paul. All of them are dated very early, because they're all examples of Jewish poetry. They were originally written in Aramaic, and their grammatical style doesn't fit the rest of the epistles they're in, because Greek writers tended to use the active voice with God. God did such and such, but the Hebrew Aramaic tended to use the passive voice, such and such was done by God. So the point is, there's a lot of reasons to think that these are early translations in the Greek of a very primitive, original Aramaic creedal statement that was used as a hymn. Now, what has been uh, established, in in my opinion, uh, beyond any reasonable doubt, was a a book by Richard Balcom, the retired professor of uh, New Testament studies, I believe it was at 
uh, Aberdeen or Edinburgh. I can't remember exactly where where he was. But he said that we have within within no more than 18 months after the crucifixion of Jesus, what we have is bi-theism. Because all these creeds are about one subject, Jesus. And they all represent him as a divine human figure who was a miracle worker who rose from the dead. And, and so they have a high Christology. They view Jesus as God. And so now the, the, here are Jews in Jerusalem that are, with, you know, no more than 18 months after he was executed. He now is being held at the same level of deity as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you have bytheism. They've not, it's not dawned on them yet that the spirit is God. So the question that Balcom says is what we have to answer as historians is how do, do a group of people who for hundreds of years have been indoctrinated that what separates us from all the other nations of the world is that we believe in one God. We're monotheists. Now, 18 months after this carpenter from an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth, it dies by crucifixion like 30,000 other Jewish males in those days. Now, in that very place, he is being equated on the same level with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it almost looks like they believe in two gods. Now, they, they, you got a problem. How is this two but one? I'm not saying that it isn't solvable, but they were they were wrestling with this. But we do know they worshipped him. He was the center of their adoration and worship, and he was deified. And Balcom says, you got to explain that. And you don't have time for legend. And this didn't happen in Corinth or Rome. It happened right there. And I think that that is strong evidence that he was understood to be the incarnation of God in some sense of the word, though they may not have had a full grasp of that. It was already there from the very beginning. This is not a late legend that developed later. You can see that progress of ideas over time. It's interesting. It strikes me that this uh, having two gods is often the apologetic use against Christians by Muslims still that, oh, well, you have three gods. What are you talking about? You haven't reconciled these these things. That's a very common, yes. common thing to hear from a Muslim person. Mm-hmm. Well, they have been reconciled. It's mm-hmm. just uh, there are different ways of reconciling it. Mm-hmm. It's not like Christians haven't provided some help on that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Jordan, I'll, I'll add that Jesus himself calls out the resurrection as proof of his deity of being God in flesh. You know, Matthew 12, 40 talks about the fact that, you know, I'm going to be in the ground three days and then I'll appear again. I'll be resurrected and that'll be the sign. So uh, that along with the fulfillment of messianic prophecy that does talk about the suffering and dying servant and uh, his other claims to be God and, and, and miracles to, to justify that claim throughout his life all make it very hard to deny that uh, that this man was making those claims and, and by this resurrection, proving that he is, in fact, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament that the Jews had for year, for centuries uh, believed in as the one true and only God.
So in answering these questions, apologists are often using the historical critical method. And what are the benefits of this method? And then I'll ask, what are some of the pitfalls we need to be aware of in looking at all of scripture this way? Well, I don't think there is such a thing as the historical critical method. I think there are historical critical methodologies. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a limited use to them, but I'm inclined to think that there are more problems with it than there are benefits. What, what this methodology does in some areas is it, it tries to break the Gospels down into little units of tradition and understand them in isolation, like a parable or there's some called pronouncement sayings where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, and they try to date those or come up with what role they played in the early church. Why were they preserved instead of other things Jesus said and did? I think that that takes them out of their context. So there was a move uh, away from form to what's called redaction criticism, where they took the Gospels more as holes. This kind of methodology can be helpful. I'll give you an example is the application of what's called the criterion of multiple attestation, which they've been able to discern that there is some material that Luke and Matthew shared in common that Mark did not include, and they call that a Q material, whether it was oral tradition or documents, we don't know, but but so there's that. There's stuff unique to Luke that isn't in the other Gospels. There's stuff unique to Matthew. And then there's John. So you've got Q, stuff unique to Luke, stuff unique to Matthew, and then John. If several of these sources have the same account in them, it increases the likelihood that this account is historically reliable. I myself consider that to be more of a sufficient, not a necessary condition, because I think historians all the time will assess a document, and it has an account of something, and there are no other documents that have anything about that, and they judge that it's credible, even though there's just one attestation. But if there are multiple and different sources, then I think that might increase the like. That's, that's a good application, I would say. Hmm. And like any field of study, there are background assumptions and a priori commitments that drive the scholarship. So, you know, if the assumption is all we can know is what we can know from science, and so there are certain claims in here that couldn't be scientifically verified, so they can't be true. Again, that's a problem mm -hmm. because there's certain philosophical assumptions brought to the table in an a priori way. But Without that, there's there's certainly some value to thinking about these things in a historical and critical way. Although, as JP rightly said, that is actually a cluster of approaches, some of which are better and some of which are are are, are worse. I think. Mm -hmm. JP, do you have anything to add on the pitfalls that we might want to be aware of? Well, I think that the Gospels are meant to be understood as holes. Mm -hmm. uh, they're given to us as as unified pieces of literature. And I think that it's best to try to approach these under the ordinary assumptions of historical grammatical interpretation, mm. namely, what would the original audience have understood this to be saying? 
So you have to do a little cultural background, understand what the history was. And then you do your best to, to treat the grammar appropriately and understand things in light of the historical context. And uh, that will give you the best chance at understanding the meaning of that text. The more redaction critical approach believes that the Gospels were put together, mm-hmm. let's say Matthew, 70 to 80 AD by a community called the Matthaean community. And so you're looking for the historical context at the period from 70 to 80, 85 AD, because what the meaning of those texts is, is constituted by the time when the community brought it together and shaped the material. So that gives you the wrong historical context to try to understand. Mm -hmm. In my view, that's why I think most of this is a waste of time, though in the hands of a a careful craftsman, they can do some good. Mm -hmm. Well said. Anything else either of you would like to add before we go? No. I think we've covered the waterfront pretty well. There's so much more to be said. And I will mention that, again, the show notes will have some other good resources on this for those who want to read more on this. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Great. Yep. Good to be I, with you. Good to be with you, too. I think one, one last comment I will make, and I'll see if you two agree with this statement. These facts do not force you to believe something. They do compel, however, a person to consider these truths. I like that. I like that. I think that's good. I like that too. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.